This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 163 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Our guest is John Zanni, CEO at Acronis SCS, a company dedicated to providing secure backup, disaster recovery, and cyber protection for the U.S. public sector. He shares his unconventional journey into a career in cybersecurity, as well as insights on the unique challenges public sector organizations face when trying to protect their valuable assets. We'll get his thoughts on threat intelligence, as well as the skills and traits he looks for when hiring, and why he thinks cybersecurity organizations should be recruiting workers from the U.S. military. Stay with us. career journey has been a, an interesting one. I actually started in the family restaurant business. So by trade, I'm a French chef. Uh, but in uh, 94, uh, I got a degree in physics and ended up uh, working for Microsoft out of Seattle, Washington. Uh, spent 16 years there among in different roles, uh, of which the last six was actually related to uh, the startup of the whole cloud uh, business. Uh, After that, uh, I left Microsoft and joined uh, another company called Odin, which was also related uh, to uh, cloud services and how do you use uh, cloud services to run your business in a secure way. And then in 2014, I moved to uh, Cronus, which was specifically uh, focused on data protection, uh, also on-premise in the cloud. And uh, in 2018, I started this company called Acronis SCS, which is an independent uh, company of Acronis, specifically focused on cyber protection and cyber edge data security needs of the U.S. public sector federal, state, and local education, nonprofit, and healthcare. Well, before we dig into some of the technical stuff, I, I can't let it pass that uh, you started out as a French chef. I, I, I believe you are the first French chef that I have spoken to here on the show. Um, can you give us a little insight into that? I mean, what, 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 uh, what was your interest there, and then what uh, caused you to, to shift away from that towards, uh, towards physics in your education? Uh, so... Uh, we come from a family of restaurant owners, uh, starting multiple generations back in Italy, then France, uh, and then in the United States. And uh, when I was 18, my father said, you can either go to college and support yourself, or you can come and work in the family business and have a great life immediately, uh, which, <laughs> uh, you know, in hindsight, he, he didn't give me much of an option. Uh, but I don't regret it. I learned a lot uh, during those 13 years uh, in terms of running a business. Uh, and as well as how to interact with customers and and be social. How I got into tech is that uh, the way my father did the books, uh, they were literally a a paper general ledger, right? So you wrote down Mm -hmm. every number in a book and did all the math all manually. And that's the time when PCs were starting to become prevalent. Uh, So I ended up uh, writing uh, over a period of a couple of years, a complete back office system for the business uh, that we used uh, for years. And, and after 13 years, I decided I really liked the technology side. 
And so I knew I needed a college degree to pursue a career there. So I ended up getting a degree in physics because I liked physics in high school. And uh, then I started applying at different places uh, and ended up at Microsoft. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because uh, there are many people who I've spoken to who have sort of uh, unconventional, you know, starts before they got into the tech side of things, and 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 most of them say that there is some crossover there that that this, many of the skills that they learned uh, before they got into the tech side of things really served them well when they did get into the technical field, and it sounds like that was the case for you. Uh, absolutely, uh, the, you know, one of the challenges in a technical field is uh, how do you explain uh, technology that can be fairly complex uh, to the layman, the non-technical person. And uh, by uh, having that experience, uh, that helped me a lot. The second part is, uh, uh, while today I serve uh, government, there's still a lot of smaller cities, uh, different uh, counties, and even when I was working with small and medium businesses who uh, run on very tight budgets, uh, as we're learning uh, during this uh, pandemic. Having uh, that experience, uh, I mean, I know what happens when in a month uh, you think everything's going well and all of a sudden the water heater goes out and the air conditioner goes out and all of a sudden you're short on cash, right? And so having that experience and that that understanding has just helped me become a better provider of technology. Can you um, take us through what your day-to-day is like at Acronis? What sort of uh, what sort of things come into play? Yes, absolutely. And and just for clarity, we are Acronis SES, so I work specifically with sensitive customers. Uh, but, I see. Yeah, my day my day-to-day focuses on uh, three core aspects. Uh, So first, uh, I'm going to start with people, my team. We have about 35 people today. And uh, in a tech company, you're only as good as the people that uh, work with you. And uh, in this environment around COVID-19, it's been super critical to make sure that people could continue to work uh, productively in an environment where we have to be socially distant, work from home, be connected to networks that aren't that secure, uh, deal with the fact that uh, some of my employees are completely isolated because they uh, don't live with anybody, and some of my employees are uh, overly uh, non-isolated because now they have a significant other, a couple of children and some dogs at mm. home all wanting attention. So people, I spend a lot of time making sure people can be productive and, and have the right environment so they can be productive. The second part of my day today is, of course, uh, the day-to-day business. Uh, if we don't get revenue, just like any other company, uh, we, uh, uh, we can't pay the bills and I can't help Uh, my employees take care of their families as well. Uh, And so I do spend quite a bit of time making sure uh, that uh, even uh, in this new pandemic, we understand the the change in the market dynamics. And there have been some, but for a cyber protection company uh, that includes cybersecurity, uh, it's actually uh, not slowed us down at all in most areas. And then the third one is what's next? Uh, technology develops very quickly. Uh, and unfortunately, the bad actors uh, also are taking advantage of this technology. So I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about what we need to build and provide 
uh, so that we can help our customers provide uh, the right level of protecting their digital lives, not only today and tomorrow, but uh, next month, next year, and, and well into the future. I'm wondering, can you share some insights as some of the things that you're hearing from your customers, particularly in that government and federal contracting space, as to how they're handling the current situation and and how they see things uh, taking place as as we move towards the future? Yes. So uh, a couple of things. First, if you look at uh, cyber attacks uh, that are happening today, unfortunately, the bad actors are taking advantage of the situation, and we've seen a significant increase in um, the number of uh, incidences. Uh, So, for example, uh, even in the last uh, two years, from 2018 to 2019, uh, the number of attacks targeting state and local government and healthcare providers increased 65%. Uh, That's an average of three attacks per day. And since COVID, that number has increased uh, significantly. uh, so the the first thing to do is is really understand uh, how they can protect themselves, uh, given that they have a wide array of technology ranging from uh, maybe the latest cloud technology using Amazon AWS or Microsoft Azure to uh, still having uh, a Windows three one one on some systems. Uh, mm. The second really big challenge uh, they have is that. Uh, where uh, up until March uh, they could require uh, individuals to work uh, uh, in the buildings where the networks were and the systems were, uh, that's become more problematic and more difficult. Uh, So Mm -hmm. in isolated networks that were purely air-gapped, now they have to figure out how they can do some of the work with some remote connection and some of the work Uh, locally while not putting their people at risk. And so that's requiring a whole new level of uh, uh, technology uh, to protect those systems. And so we're spending a lot of time talking to them about that. I know one of your focuses is uh, critical infrastructure. And uh, can you share your thoughts on um, where your concerns are there, the, the potential uh, things we need to protect against when it comes to things like our electrical grid, uh, water treatment plants, and so on? One of the uh, uh, trends I've seen is uh, when uh, the government talks about resiliency, they, they talk about physical uh, resiliency. So, you know, what happens if there's an earthquake or an hurricane or uh, a fire? I don't see as much conversation about uh, uh, digital re- resiliency. And uh, today we're completely digital uh, uh, in our lives. Just imagine if this uh, pandemic happened 30 years ago. Uh, you know, I can exist and work because I'm connected to the internet. I can get Instacart to deliver uh, uh, food to me. So while I'm somewhat inconvenienced, uh, life uh, goes on. But that's because mm. we we have a digital world. And uh, to this point, it's been... Uh, pretty uh, resilient. Now let's take the the case of uh, utilities. Take uh, industrial control systems, right? SCADA systems. Uh, They Mm -hmm. are uh, one of the top three uh, vectors of attack for bad actors, mostly uh, nation states, uh, because they know if they broke down the electrical grid, 
that it would cause uh, chaos, which would allow them to uh, do even more uh, damage. And you can you can see headlines all the time about attacks on critical uh, infrastructure. And so what you need to do uh, is really uh, to think about the things that you would do just to like to protect protect your own uh, health. So what do you do to protect yourself against a virus? Well, you can get vaccinated. That's like prevention. Uh, you can get tested. Uh, that's like detection. You can get uh, medication, right, if you're sick. That's a response, uh, real-time monitoring, alerting. Uh, if it's really bad, you can get surgery. Uh, that's like recovering. Uh, and, of course, you research to see how you can make this uh, disease go away forever. That's tied to uh, forensics. We, we use the term SAPAS, uh, security, accessibility, privacy, authenticity, and uh, safety. Uh, but it really is around uh, the ability uh, to protect your critical infrastructure so that nothing bad ever happens. But if something bad does happen, you can recover very quickly. And uh, there are a lot of tools to help you do that. We're obviously one of them that's focused on that. Uh, but uh, you need to make sure you have those tools along with the people in the process uh, to have that uh, digital uh, resiliency. You know, I, I personally, I find that to be a really helpful analogy comparing cybersecurity to uh, public health, um, specifically in that, you know, when you think of something as simple as like a common cold, you know, I can do uh, all of the things to help uh, lower the the chances of me getting a cold, I can, you know, wash my hands and, and uh, uh, be careful when I sneeze and so on and so forth. Um, but every now and then I'm still going to get a cold, you know, and uh, the people around me are still going to get colds. And so, like you say, you know, there I can I can try to uh, be healthy in other parts of my life. So if I get a cold, it's not going to take me down the way it might if I were less healthy. Um, I find those to be really helpful uh, analogies uh, when it comes to... Uh, Cyber resiliency. Yes, uh, exactly. And uh, I'll bring up my father again. He's 90 years old and mm. uh, he, he loves giving me advice. Uh, I think he thinks <laughs> I'm still 18, which is fine. I love him dearly. But one thing he told me and repeats constantly, he says, John, no matter what you do, you're going to end up in the hospital at some point. So you better make sure you have good insurance. And, and the point is, uh, and of course, in terms of our health, it's just that we're all living longer now. And because we're living longer, it's a lot of it is due to uh, the advances in medicine. It means that our body tends to break down and then we have to go fix it. Uh, mm. Cyber resiliency is the same. Uh, you can have the best antivirus and anti-spam and anti-ransomware solution uh, there, uh, but uh, something will go wrong. A system doesn't get updated. A, a user clicks on a link they're not supposed to click on. Uh, somebody leaves a laptop in a bathroom at the airport, right? And it's not yeah. locked. Uh, in those cases, you have to have a good backup and recovery solution or uh, and for critical infrastructure, disaster recovery solution, so that you can lock out the bad actor and, and get up and running as quickly as, uh, as possible. And, you know, that's what emergency rooms are for and hospitals are for, right? I, I want to get your take on threat intelligence and, and the part that you think that plays in an organization's uh, 
preparedness and, and defenses? It's key and, and critical uh, to do that. And and one of the uh, prouder moments I have are, uh, about our society and specifically the cybersecurity world is that even competitors are willing to share threat intelligence because they know uh, that by pooling the information we learn, uh, we can stop bad actors, which uh, helps uh, all of us. Uh, so um, what that means is if there is a concentrated cyber attack uh, uh, in California, for example, and uh, we find out about it through one of our threat intelligence sources, now we can make sure we let all our customers know uh, that are in California, that they need to be careful and their systems are up to date and and uh, what to watch out for. And if we catch something going on in Washington, D.C., and we share that information with other uh, cybersecurity vendors, they can do the same for their customers. Uh, but uh, collecting threat intelligence uh, and then uh, communicating that out uh, is critical. And of course, the government, uh, U.S. government pays a key role there because they uh, have access to a ton of data that they can also share, uh, not only with other agencies, but with everybody. What sort of advice do you have for people who are looking to get started in in this industry, either coming up through school or maybe thinking about a a career shift? Do you have any tips for them? I I do, actually. And uh, it it really depends what stages uh, there are in, in their life. I'll give you an example of what we're doing to help people uh, enter this space. And the reason we're doing it uh, is uh, a little bit selfish, but also uh, not so much. Uh, I had to hire a lot of people very quickly in 2019. And, uh, you know, before March, unemployment was near zero. And uh, even the data shows that today there's over 400,000 open. Actually, I take that back. Before COVID, there were over 400,000 open cybersecurity positions in the United States. Uh, since uh, COVID, uh, that number has increased to over 600,000. So there's a shortage of uh, cybersecurity experts. Uh, the way I found them is I hired uh, a large number of U.S. veterans. So close to a third of my staff are, are U.S. veterans. Uh, they have a natural ability uh, to perform well in cybersecurity-related tasks. And so uh, we created a foundation called the Cronus SES Vets uh, that was specifically designed to help transitioning veterans enter the cybersecurity uh, space. Uh, in that case, it's a 12-week course. Uh, you get certifications with CompTI uh, that allows you to get uh, entry-level or mid-level jobs uh, in this space. So uh, all of this was a long way to say if you need a job immediately because you have a family to take care of and, and uh, you want a self-sustaining career, uh, look at some of those cybersecurity certificates from uh, CompTI. There's uh, plenty of training uh, companies uh, around the United States who can uh, provide uh, that training in a uh, 12-week uh, or so period. If you have more time, I, I would get a two-year or four-year uh, degree. Uh, and if you're a U.S. veteran, then uh, please contact me because uh, we have ways <laughs> uh, that uh, through grants and donations, uh, we can help veterans and their spouses uh, get this training for free. 
can't do it for everybody. I'm sorry, but I can at least do it for U.S. veterans. <laughs> well, it's interesting too that um, that you have experienced um, this value from veterans, and but you yourself are not a veteran of of the military, correct? Uh, that is correct. Uh, but uh, if you think about it. Uh, most jobs out there are first in small and medium businesses and second in organizations that are not owned or run by U.S. veterans or have the ability uh, to have a special department within HR focused on U.S. veterans. And so it uh, took a little bit of learning uh, to understand uh, how to integrate that culture into uh, a commercial culture. It was absolutely uh, worthwhile, and that's why I created this foundation, because I think U.S. veterans are an untapped potential uh, within the United States and and military spouses, for that matter. Uh, So if I can do my little part to uh, really take advantage of that resource to make America have the digital resiliency it needs, um, I should do it. Cybersecurity and digital resiliency uh, can be uh, overwhelming. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't a clear guidance around uh, on how to protect your systems, uh, and then it can be pretty complex. But you need to get started somewhere. And so I would suggest uh, to people listening to this, uh, find an advisor or vendor that can help you, that has some tools and some training that can get you started. And, and and really, the three things to focus on is making sure you keep your system up to date, you have a good antivirus, uh, anti-spam, anti-ransomware solution, and you have a good backup and recovery solution. If you've done that, uh, you're 90% of the way there. Our thanks to John Zani from Acronis SCS for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. 